0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I am appearing to you today live from Kenya. We're in a hotel in a city called Magori, and we've been here for a few nights We're going to pull out tomorrow morning, and today we had a a conference with a couple hundred pastors and leaders from a pretty extended area around here. They were coming from several counties to be a part of this pastors and leaders conference. And as a part of that as well, we did a lot of dental work. My wife and her dental team came and did just a wonderful work uh, there with uh, meeting with a lot of people. So, uh, I'm gonna get to our lead question in just a minute. And I'll probably tell you a little bit more about our time in Kenya here. But I I just wanna say from the beginning, I really hope that uh, everything works well with the live stream. I'm doing this over cellular data. At the hotel we're saying, it seems like the cellular data is gonna be a lot more reliable way to uh, transmit this than it would be the Wi-Fi that's here at the hotel. So again, glad you could join us. Glad you could be a part of this, and uh, I'm really happy when I can do these on the road. Uh, it seems that God has given us just a lot of friends and a lot of partners all over the world, uh, people in ministry. So my wife and I, for different aspects of ministry, uh, together for conferences or visiting people or spending time with people, we'll travel, and then again, my wife has her own uh, dental ministry that uh, several of you support, and we're very happy about that, uh, but um, I'm happy when we can do these YouTube Lives on the road. It's just sort of fun. Adds another little dimension to it. So let me just get right into it and go into the lead question today. You'll see me looking down because instead of looking at a screen in front of me, like I would normally have, uh, we're gonna do that. Uh, I'll get to that question in a minute. It'll be the third question that I answer. So uh, coordinating a little bit here with my wife, who's kind of like my producer, my helper here in the studio here. Yeah, no, not really. Okay, anyway, so here's the first question. It's from Julie via email. And I'm kind of summarizing it as, is the gift of tongues for everyone? That's sort of the theme of the question. Let me read to you her question, which came via email. Here it was. Uh, Julie says, I listened to your teaching. Do all speak in tongues. I thought it was really good. It's helped me on my journey. And by the way, I do speak in tongues. But from some of the things you said, I have these questions. Here's one question wouldn't the tongues be for everyone to eventually manifest because of Jude 20, which says we should be building ourselves up uh, in the most holy faith. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where it says, when you don't know what to pray, that the Spirit helps you pray in your weakness. And then a second question she has is, and then I also wonder, if the Spirit gives the gifts as he wills, how could everyone have the gift of tongues I mean, because at Pentecost it says they were all filled, not just the apostles, but the rest that made up the 120. And the other instances in the Bible after that where it says that they were all filled and spoke in tongues. Well, um, Julie, very happy for your email, for your question. Let me sort of get right to it if I can. Uh, I I would say, first of all, um, no, you are correct. Uh, I don't believe all people have the, all believers have the gift of tongues. Um, I think this is pretty clear in First Corinthians chapter twelve, uh, verses twenty-nine and thirty, where it says this. Paul is asking what we call rhetorical questions, um, and he says, uh, "Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gift of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret?" And again. These are rhetorical questions so that the uh, anticipated or expected answer for every one of these is uh, no, of course, no, that's not the, uh, the correct answer. So um, that seems to answer it pretty well. Paul's just saying not every believer. The Holy Spirit doesn't give the gift of tongues to every believer. No more does he give the gift of uh, being a prophet or a teacher or a work or miracles or gift of healings or interpretation of tongues. So that seems pretty clear there. Um, But the second idea here is um, I would like to say uh, that um, no, not every believer wants or senses a need for the gift of tongues. Let's remember this about the gift of tongues, is that the one who speaks in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2 points this out, they speak to God and not to man. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says this, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. So that's one of the fundamental principles to understanding the gift of tongues. is so often overlooked that with the gift of tongues, the communication is not horizontal from one person to another person. It's vertical between the individual and God. God by the inspiration of the power of the Holy Spirit is speaking through that believer, prayer, praise, intercession, uh, whatever it might be, in a way that's wonderfully inspired by the Holy Spirit. And also along these lines, the Bible tells us specifically that tongues is a gift that edifies the individual believer. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14 verse four says that he who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church." And then in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul said this, "'If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful.'" Nobody else would understand, and I don't even understand, but God understands, and that's the critical aspect to the gift of tongues. So um, yeah, again, I would just agree with you there uh, on, on your question there, Julie regarding that, but you bring up a couple of questions simply that um, wouldn't tongues be for everyone eventually to manifest because, uh, no, I I think what you're doing here is when it says in Romans chapter 8.26 that the Spirit helps us in our praying, we have to understand that that is a concept that goes beyond the gift of tongues. Now, I, I do believe that the gift of tongues is a way that the Holy Spirit assists people in their praying. I don't have any doubt about that, but by no means is it the only way the Holy Spirit can assist somebody in their prayers in other ways as well. And I think um, you just have to include that. So I believe that that's something open for every believer, but um, not every believer uh, will use the gift of tongues to pray with the assistance of God. And then you also say, yes, the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wills, but there do seem to be a few unique occasions in the Bible where everyone present Uh, received the gift of tongues. And I I really regard those as things that are just kind of naturally um, showing that God was doing something very special on those occasions. The gift of tongues, when the gospel went to the Samaritans, when the gospel came to the Gentiles, we see, or when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles, we see very similar kind of things happening. So um, I I do just want to say this because I think it's an important aspect to it. I think it's important to understand why a person should seek the gift of tongues. When somebody comes up to me and asks, hey, would you please pray for me to receive the gift of tongues? Then I tell them I'm happy to do it, but then I always ask them, why do you want the gift of tongues? Why? And and then I ask them, do you ever feel limited in your ability to pray, to praise, to intercede? Do do you ever feel that um, there's more in your heart than you can articulate before God? Now, when I ask people that question, sometimes their answer is just very honestly, no, I never really seem to have that problem. And then I say, well, then fine. If you never really seem to have that problem or that challenge, then don't worry about the gift of tongues. If you ever do come to that place, then let's talk about it. But if the person says, yes, there are times when I just can't express to God the prayer, the praise, the intercession that I feel needs to be offered to him, then I say, now let's seek the gift of tongues because that's what the gift of tongues is. It's a means of communication with God that transcends human understanding but is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I just think that believers should seek it when they have a sense of a need for that. Now, there are bad reasons to seek the gift of tongues. And this is what I would say about the bad reasons. You shouldn't seek the gift of tongues to prove something to yourself, such as, oh, well, I'll know God really loves me if he gives me the gift of tongues. I'll I'll know God really blesses me. No, friends, you are loved and you can know it because of what Jesus did at the cross. God can give you no greater evidence than what Jesus did at the cross. You know God is filling your life with blessing and goodness because of what Jesus has done for you. So, Prove to me, God, that you'll bless me or that you love me. That's not a good reason to seek the gift of tongues. It's also not good to seek the gift of tongues to prove something to somebody else. And this is very common because there are some churches, there are some streams, if you want to call it that, within Christianity that promote the idea that you're not truly filled with the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. I think one of the really dangerous uh, results of that misunderstanding of scripture is that people seek or often fake the gift of tongues just to prove something to somebody. Hey, I need to prove to you that I really am filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to prove to you that I really am saved. I need to prove to you that I really am blessed by God. And friends, that is just the wrong reason. That's not why God gives his gifts. And so um, you shouldn't seek the gift of tongues to prove something to yourself, You shouldn't seek the gift of tongues to prove something to someone else. It's not a merit badge. It's not like a stamp of approval. No, the gift of tongues is to communicate with God that transcends my understanding. And that's what's valuable. That's what's such a blessing about it. And uh, I thank you for your question, Julie. Now, I'm gonna get on to a very special question from a very special young man who's a friend of ours. His name is Aslan. Aslan is uh, nine or 10 years old and he loves Jesus and he's very inquisitive. And uh, I especially wanna bring this, two quick questions from you. We received them from Aslan while we're on this trip and they were such good questions that I wanted to just answer them briefly for our whole YouTube audience. But it also gives me the opportunity to let you know something. We are going to do something very special June 22nd, which is not quite two months away. And the reason why we're setting it off so far in the future is we're going to do some special things for it. But what we're going to do on Thursday, June 22nd is a kids question and answer time on Thursday. We want your kids, your children, your grandchildren to submit questions that we're going to answer that I'm going to answer on our uh, Enduring Word video channel on a regular Thursday program. And, uh, For some of the questions, we will receive them. We'll receive them by email or social media, however the ways we do it. But we will also be receiving some questions by video. And we'll show the question as we uh, do it. So there'll be a little bit of coordination for that and we'll give you more details. But I'm excited to say that on June 22nd, we're gonna have a special kids question and answer time. Okay, now here's the question from Aslan. And uh, we're gonna play it for you by audio, just so you can hear it. And uh, go ahead, we'll get ready and play it. My lovely assistant is playing it. Then first, how do I know when an angel shows up, if it's a demon or an angel? And second, are we going to be naked in heaven because Adam and Eve were naked in the Garden of Eden? Okay, did you hear those two questions from our friend Aslan? His first question was, if an angel shows up, how do I know if it's an angel or a demon? Well, Aslan, I want you to know that that is a good question because demons can pretend to be angels. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, we read that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And we also read in the book of Hebrews that there have been some people who have been visited by angels and they didn't even know it. And so we know that at least it's possible for people to have an angelic visit, but is it possible that somebody could uh, think they're having an angelic visit, but it's really a demon? And how would we know the difference? Aslan, I, I don't know if there's ways that we can know the difference. I don't think you're gonna smell something different or see something different or anything like that, especially because we read that demons can pretend to be angels and present themselves as angels of light, of things of good. So here's one way you would know. You would know by the message that the angel or the demon brings. Paul said, the apostle Paul said, that even if an angel from heaven were to preach some other gospel, then God gave us in Jesus Christ, he says this in Galatians chapter 1, then we should reject it. It's a false message. So it doesn't matter if it comes from an angel or a demon. If it's false, if it's not true, according to the word of God, then we should reject it and have nothing to do with it. I don't know if we'll always be able to tell if it's an angel or a demon by what it leads us to do or the message that it brings us or whatever else, the fruit that it brings, we'll be able to know by that. Okay, so that's the first question from Aslan. And the next one I can answer just very quickly. Aslan asked, will we be naked in heaven? Well, I don't know if you think that's kind of a, I don't know, awkward question. I don't think it's awkward. Aslan asked, listen, Adam and Eve were naked in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Maybe in heaven we will return to that. But Aslan, the answer is no. We will not return to that state of the Garden of Eden because the book of Revelation makes many references to people in heaven being clothed. I'll just give you a few references to that. Revelation chapter three, verse five, Jesus said, he who overcomes will be clothed in in white garments. And Revelation chapter four, verse four, these are elders surrounding the throne of God who represent the people of God. They are clothed in white robes. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, those who are around the throne of God are clothed with white robes. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, armies of heaven, which we know from the book of Jude are the saints of God, are clothed in fine linen. So for these and other reasons, we can just say that no, we're not going to be naked in heaven. We will be clothed some kind of robe, some kind of garment, some kind of linen garment, something that shows that we are pure, holy, and with the Lord forever. Aslan, thank you for those questions. We love you, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in not too long, maybe uh, within the next month or so. We're gonna be paying a visit, so. All right, now, with all of that, on to the questions. Maybe a little bit later, I will get in something here from the... um, uh, from telling you a little bit more about what we're doing in Canaan right now. Um, but here's one question that Ken. comes up here. Kenyan. Kenya, did I say? Canaan. I said Canaan. Oh, I meant Kenyan. Thank you. My wonderful wife says, "Dear, do you have any desire to appear on camera here? No, I just Okay, all right. Well, just let me know if you need to add anything here. Okay, <laughs> here's the question that comes in from, let me bring it up here, from uh, Hripsimi, who asks this. And rips me. Please forgive me. I'm just doing it from this. I forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name. Has hi, Pastor Guzik. Are there Bible verses about dealing with life challenges, especially in terms of delays allowed by God? Huge delays for therapy funding for my special needs son who has autism. Rips me. I'm very sorry to hear about this. And before I do anything else, I would just like to pray for your son. Um, Maybe our YouTube audience can pray along. with. just very briefly we want to pray for Hripsimi's son. Uh, Lord, we pray for Hripsimi and we pray for her son that you would grant to her, Lord, the relief that she needs in getting the help, the assistance that uh, is being provided, but it's just not being provided for them right now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would intervene and make this uh, go very quickly. They've been waiting a long time. Show your grace and your mercy to this mother and her son. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship to me, obviously, we can pray, and we should pray for such things, but you already know that. But you ask about if there's Bible verses dealing with life challenges, especially in terms of delays. I would uh, think of two things. First of all, there is the idea in the Bible, uh, I think of it most notably in Psalms, and there's passages in Isaiah You can search this uh, in, you know, Bible program. Um, The idea of waiting on the Lord. Just search for that phrase, wait on the Lord. And the idea of waiting on the Lord isn't like waiting in the sense of just sitting around waiting for something to happen. But it's waiting in the sense of just being attentive to God, sort of like a a, a butler or a uh, server at a restaurant would wait upon a person. But it still indicates some of that idea that we are uh, waiting upon God to take initiative, waiting upon God to move. We're, we are, we are studied upon him. We're careful looking at the Lord, and, and we're just looking to what he wants to do. Um, but at the same time, we're being attentive to that. And, and I think there's that concept. But for to me, I also come back to the idea that God tells us again and again. I love this passage from Peter where he says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. You know, the cares of life, and certainly with this particular thing that you need for your therapy for your autistic son, this would be a care of life. They come upon us and they press upon us like a burden, like a load, like a very heavy backpack that somebody might carry. And God simply says, I want you to cast those cares upon me knowing that I care for you. And and I want you to consider, it's like every day, uh, that backpack that we wear of the cares and the concerns of the world, it just gets a little more full, a little heavier. And what we have to do is continually empty it, continually cast those cares upon God. And then the other verse I would just think is that passage in Philippians, where the apostle Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Uh, And so when the anxiety starts coming upon us, when we start worrying and fretting, then we just come to the Lord again and again, and we say, Lord, I wanna be anxious for nothing, so I'm gonna pray about this and commit this to you. Ripsome, God bless you. I pray that very soon you get the assistance that you need, and I pray that God strengthens you and you see that God's delays, or what appear to be delays for us, we understand that God's timing is perfect in all things, but certainly there's many situations in our Christian life when it feels to us like there's a delay, uh, then we can trust God's delays or apparent delays are not his denials. Okay, uh, let me um, tell you a little bit about what we've been doing here in Kenya. Uh, The last couple of days, we've had an amazing time. Uh, Yesterday, we were at a village called South Keman. I look it up here. I'm a little bit embarrassed here because uh, I should have had this right here. Let me look up here. Yes, we were in, no, no, South Kedem, that's the place. It's a little village uh, on the shores of Lake Victoria. And we were there hosted by a wonderful group of pastors and uh, and many people from congregations surrounding. And it was one of those situations where Brent Harrell from Calvary Chapel of Rome and myself preached to those people who were there in several sessions throughout the day. And our dental crew did an amazing job of doing dental work out there. And uh, we worked with some wonderful pastors, uh, some great interpreters who helped us speak in the local languages. Uh, Pastor Jared was there helping us. And then again, there was also um, our good friend uh, Thompson, who was a wonderful translator. And it was just a great day of ministry out there, Uh, kind of out in the wild. It was a good, I don't know. 30, 40-minute over rough dirt roads to get out there to him. But this is a community of several thousand people there in South Kadem. And it's wonderful to see that God has his church all over the world, that there's people who love Jesus and serve him and sing songs of praise and listen to his word and uh, love Jesus, uh, of course, as God's believers do all over the world. Then today, we were in a city, a smaller city called Rongo. And in Rongo, uh, Pastor Achilla there helped us to arrange, or actually he arranged it with some people on the ground, a pastors and leaders conference where we must have had a couple of hundred people there present. We were all surprised at how many people showed up for this We had a wonderful time of encouraging and instructing and answering questions for these pastors. And all along the way at this uh, training center in Rongo, uh, the dental team did their thing. And I hear it was a great day of dental care from the team. They really spent themselves. They've been working very hard the last three days, but it's been a really effective time of helping people that uh, many of these people have never been to a dentist before. And it would be theoretically possible for them to see a dentist. There are dentists, of course, in this part of Kenya, uh, but uh, practically speaking, it's so expensive for them relatively that uh, this is a very, very helpful and needed ministry. And let me tell you, they just don't do the dental work. They really minister spiritually to all these folks. And we heard at least one report today of a wonderful little girl who uh, received, well, she's not so, I guess she was a teenager uh, or maybe young adult. And she committed her life to Christ uh, through a wonderful time of just uh, talking with and ministering with one of our uh, dental team, Peggy Ball was there. So anyway, that was her time in Kenya. Let me get to the next question that comes along the way here. It is from uh, Anahui, who asks, in light of all that's happening in the world, uh, I ask, do you lead from the pulpit and address our government? Well, Anahui, I'm in a little bit different situation, I would say, than many pastors, in that uh, I am not leading a congregation. Now, I certainly get to speak and preach around but I don't have that pastoral responsibility over a congregation. And I think that does make the dynamic a little bit different because a pastor senses his responsibility to speak to his congregation, to his flock, the flock that God has entrusted to him, as uh, First Peter says, and uh, he has a responsibility to talk to them about what's going on in the community, what's going on in the state or the province, what's going on in the nation. And uh, so I, I think my responsibility as not being a particular shepherd over a congregation is a little bit different. Yet, nevertheless, um, where I feel led by the Spirit, where I feel the text leads us, I I think we need to speak to such things, things that are happening from the world. And um, it it is important for pastors, again, as they would lead, as they would be led by the Holy Spirit, to speak to where things are at in the day and in the age where they're at. It doesn't mean that they need to be... um, obsessed with cultural things, obsessed with political things, obsessed with economic things, but they need to know how to speak the truth of God and the wisdom of God to the things that their congregation is thinking about and and worrying about. And they need to bring the care, the compassion, the boldness, the courage of Jesus Christ. Look, we are in a time of very rapid change in Western culture talking to some of the brothers and sisters here in Kenya. Oh, they see it. They see how much wickedness there is in the United States right now. How much is represented under what is often called the LGBTQ plus trans community and all that. Uh, h- how much wickedness in the advance and the promotion of wickedness where people and lifestyles uh, aren't only tolerated but uh, there's a demand to applaud them, to give them special accommodation, to promote them in the society at large. Uh, People around the world see this in Western society. Again, many brothers and sisters here in Kenya have mentioned this to me and they deplore it. They don't want any of that over here. Well, people see it in our own culture and it is appropriate. um, Again, as the Holy Spirit would lead, we're not gonna make some kind of rule Well, a pastor must speak to these issues this many times a month or this many times a quarter in the year. But pastors should not be afraid to engage with these things from a biblical perspective and speak to their congregation as God would direct them. Okay, uh, thank you for that question there, Anahui. Here's a question from Brenda, or excuse me, Brandy, who asks, does the three day of darkness take place during the great tribulation. Uh, Brandy, yes, uh, that is one of the, boy, you know, in in the book of Revelation, there's a series of judgments. There's the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, and the trumpet judgments. I think I have that in the correct order. And these days of darkness, where it's it's a tangible darkness, it's darkness that can be felt across the earth. Yes, uh, according to my understanding of biblical prophecy, which, look, Christians have different perspectives, but you're asking me the question, so I'll give you my understanding. Yes, those three days of very tangible, notable darkness do in fact happen during the Great Tribulation. Next question comes from Sarah, who asks, "'Hello, David, I'm newly married, and I wanted to know your advice and wisdom on serving as a married couple. I knew in your, you and your wife serve separately but still support each other. Thank you in advance.'" Did you hear that question, sweetie? Yes, I did, thank you for that. (laughs) Okay, so Sarah, what a great question. And I have to say that um, one of the many great blessings of our marriage is that I'm married to a godly woman who serves the Lord and has her own gifts and enablings. And uh, Sarah, you're exactly right, in our particular marriage, We have some ways, several ways that we serve together. We have other ways that we serve independently. But even in the independent service that we do, uh, if I'm away at a conference and Ingalil's not joining me or something like that, I know that she's praying for me, that her heart is with me. That she has prayed and that she is praying, that she supports what I'm doing, even if sometimes it's an inconvenience or a sacrifice to her. Now, of course, it goes without saying that I'm trying to be sensitive to that and to not, you know, put any kind of excessive hardship. But at the same time, my wife is a strong woman who is willing to endure some difficulty and hardship for the sake of advancing the kingdom through whatever gifts and callings God has given me, but then also she's willing to endure that hardship for whatever gifts and callings God has given her. And right now it's very much uh, before us because we are in the midst of this dental missions trip where she goes out several times a year now, I think this year it'll be three trips, perhaps this year, three, maybe four, where she goes to places that often have difficulty in getting good uh, good dental care And uh, she often organizes a team, such as she's done here. She's here with four other women who are doing an amazing work together with her. Uh, Some of them are pastor's wives. Some of them are just people who love the Lord. Uh, And it's a wonderful time to to just see what God does through willing hearts and hands. Now, when Ingelo does that, she does it knowing that she's going to accept discomfort, some hardship some trials, some surprises, but she says, Lord, it's worth it to help people in Jesus' name, to see you do a work, to advance your kingdom, and to honor you with my gifts. Now, she also does it knowing that I support her in this. Um, Look, there's times when Ingalil is off doing a dental mission, and I'm home alone, and I'd rather have her around. You know, maybe the first day or couple of days that she's gone, I'm thinking, oh man, great, I can get so much done around the house or this or that. That leaves pretty quickly and I just kind of mope around the house for days until she gets back. Would I rather have her at home? Yes, of course I would. But I'd say, no, no, you go, sweetheart. You go, you use these gifts, you use this calling that God has given to you. So Sarah, I would just say that that it's recognizing that there's gonna be some ways that God calls you to serve together, which my wife and I certainly know. But spouses should be looking for and encouraging and supporting the gifts and callings that God has given to their spouse. And I think that that's been something that's been a blessing for us in our marriage. Thank you very much for that question, Sarah, and I pray that God blesses you. It's great to get these things uh, sort of established on good tracks early in your marriage. All right, the next question comes from uh, Adonis who asks how would you respond to a Judaism who says that Jesus shouldn't be tr- trusted because Luke chapter 4 verse 18 has Jesus quoting Matthew chapter excuse me Isaiah chapter 61 and adding recovery of sight to the blind to it Well Adonis uh, I kind of understand how uh, a jewish partisan, I don't know what the right word exactly would be, Uh, a a Jewish person who is resistant to Christian evangelism and resents Christian evangelism and wants to, you know, sort of counteract Christian evangelism. Uh, I can understand why they might say that, but I, I would just simply reply like this, from a Christian perspective, it is completely irrelevant, completely irrelevant, because even though I'm not quite so familiar with the textual issues in the passage you're quoting. The, the immediate thing, I think, is that if there is some Old Testament manuscript evidence or if there's some rabbinic evidence for the inclusion of recovery of sight to the blind, there in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. But leaving that aside, let's just say that there is no such evidence and that this is just like a, a question that comes why did Jesus add this? Please, Adonis, know that from a Christian perspective, it's completely irrelevant because Jesus Christ is God. (laughs) And he has the right to add anything he wants to his word. This is not the same situation at all as someone who would be a human instrument of God uh, that we might say, well, why are they adding? Why are they taking something away from the word God? Can we understand this? No, Jesus Christ is God, and therefore he has Uh, more than abundantly the right to do such things. So, uh, Adonis, I, I would just try to explain to my Jewish friend, my Jewish debating appointment, look, I understand why that's a question for you, but for a Christian, it's absolutely no question, because we believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, that he is not only the Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world, but that Jesus Christ is God. So, I hope that helps you get at least one perspective on it. I would wanna do some digging. I don't know if I say anything about this in my commentary, but I would wanna do some digging uh, to see if there's anything more to be said about that. Now, uh, let me tell you just a little bit. First of all, I wanna say we're about 35 minutes into our hour long question and answer, and to this point, our internet connection has been great. It's just going out over cell data, but. If I use my phone for it as I'm doing right now, it doesn't use as much data and it seems to work. And I hope I'm not, you know, being presumptuous and saying that who knows, it could go out in just a couple of minutes. And we have had some power outages here at our hotel. And so I have a reserve light just in case we need to light things up here. But uh, so far the power has been fine. The internet seems to be working fine. And uh, very pleased that you could join us here today where I am, broadcasting or doing the Q&A live from Kenya. Uh, We've been here for almost, well, I guess it is, today's the seventh day we've been here. And what a blessed trip it's been to meet the beautiful, uh, godly men and women uh, from the different churches and conferences and meeting groups and children's homes and places that we've been uh, in a few different places in the country Uh, On Saturday, we're going to leave for Uganda, and we're looking forward to there being part of a pastors and wives conference in Jinja. So we fly into Entebbe and then make our way over to Jinja. Uh, So again, I'm just very grateful to God that it's all working out for the uh, internet on this and that we can do a live stream here. Now, next week, God willing, we'll do the live stream from a hotel room again, because it's 10 o'clock at night here, from a live stream in a hotel room from Uganda. Uh, I think it's, believe it's in Entebbe that will be at that particular night in the hotel. So if the internet connection is good enough to do it there, we'll do it there from the hotel. If it isn't good enough, then I'll have a colleague step in. Um, But God willing, and if we live, it'll be that way for next week broadcasting live from Entebbe. And Matt, I say, before I get to the next question that has come in from Leslie, um, I just want to say thank you for your prayers. We feel God's blessing on our work here. My wife and I were just speaking, but she was just telling me how she just really senses the favor of God upon what they're doing. And uh, it doesn't mean that everything's easy. She told me and the team told all of us it was a rough day. Man, they had a lot of difficult dental situations to deal with. So it was a day that they were really spent. It was a day that they had a lot of challenges. But nevertheless, it was blessed. And a lot of people were really helped. And she senses the favor of God on what they're doing. I really sense the favor of God on my time with Kenyan pastors and leaders and, uh, and just everyday believers. I sense the favor of God, and friends, I'm absolutely convinced that one significant reason for that is because people like you are praying, so thank you for those prayers. Okay, let me go on now to uh, a next question that comes from Leslie. Leslie asks this, uh, would you mind sharing what your devotional time is like with prayer and Bible reading plan? I've read the Bible many times, but now I seem to be focusing on the New Testament as it applies to my life more. Leslie, I'm happy to answer that question. The the kind of the, One of the key components of my own devotional life is the time of prayer that my wife and I uh, try to have every day. Look, we, we don't have it every single day, sometimes because we're apart. Now, even when we're apart, we're praying for one another, and of course we're praying to God in our own time. But anytime we're together, we try to have a time, But Look, occasionally life circumstances come into place. There's an early morning flight to catch and for whatever reason, it gets overlooked. Uh, But mostly we pray together every day. And that's one key component to my own devotional life. It's something that my wife Ingalil and I prize very highly is our just time of prayer and connection every day together before the Lord. As far as Bible reading, most of my devotional reading takes place in the Psalms. I'm just always often through the day from my phone, from a device, from a paper Bible when I have the chance, I I love to just in in moments that are planned and moments that are spontaneous, I love to read the Psalms and meditate on them just for their devotional and spiritual value. I find it very touching and very meaningful. Now, you might say, well, David, you're neglecting the rest of the Bible then by focusing on the Psalms. And I, I don't know how exactly to say this, but the nature of my work, especially the work I have uh, presenting a written commentary on the entire Bible, um, I'm in the Bible a lot and it feeds my soul, it nourishes my soul. I'm not just in the Bible for what it might say to somebody else. When I'm in the Bible, I'm first looking at it for what it means, what the correct interpretation is. But when it comes to application, I'm looking for what it says to me. And then I'm also think of what it may have to say to a broader audience. So because of that and the uniqueness of that work, lately, uh, just in the last six months, I've been very deliberately going through the entire Bible chapter by chapter in preparation for an Enduring Word Study Bible that's gonna be coming out in a year and a half or whatever, so I'm sure some later time, I'll give you more details on that. So I feel like I am in the scriptures in general, Genesis to Revelation a lot. My devotional time focuses on the Psalms. And if there's any favorite written devotional that I like, I always have a affection for Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. I find those devotionals to be very helpful, very touching. Uh, so thank you very much, Leslie, for that question. I'm gonna give it a few minutes here and see if some more questions come in from our group. Again, so pleased that you could join us today. I am uh, sending this to you from a hotel room uh, in the Kenyan city of Magura, Magori. We are on the western part of Kenya not very far from Tanzania, and we're further away from Uganda, but we're not all that far from uh, Tanzania. And uh, we are really enjoying our time here. The weather has been good. It's just coming into the rainy season right now, but we haven't had an outpouring of rain. Uh, We've had heavy rains at times for sure, but at times when we really needed uh, some, (laughs) some dry weather. There's been some times when we've been going from uh, place to place on the road for several hours and we've had luggage strapped to the top of the big four by four land cruiser that we're traveling in uh, and in the midst of that, we oh Lord, it would be nice if it didn't rain so that our luggage up top didn't get wet and God answered those prayers. So we've been able to avoid that thus far. And again, very, very much enjoying our time, feeling God's blessing, God's favor on it, because people like you are praying, and so I invite you to keep praying for that work. Let me get to the next question here from Rose, who asks this question. "Um, Can you please explain why the gift of tongues, which is directed to God, is not interpreted by the gift of prophecy, which is directed to the church, as practiced by some churches? Well, Rose, I I would just try to explain it like this that it is just simply within the nature of what the gift of tongues is about as i quoted to you before in first corinthians chapter 14 i believe it's at verse 4 maybe i should take a look at that no it's not verse 4 i kind of want to get this right it is actually verse 2 for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to god And again, Paul admits that when he spoke in an unknown tongue, which he said he delighted to do, he said, I thank the Lord that I speak in tongues more than you all, Paul delighted to speak in tongues. And when he did, he recognized that he did not understand what he was saying, but it was understood by God. So your specific question here, Rose, is um, why it's not interpreted by the gift of prophecy. Because the gift of prophecy is generally a spontaneous word inspired by God to people on a horizontal level. It's God speaking to man. The gift of tongues is man speaking to God. And that's just simply the difference. So I believe that if a utterance in tongues is properly interpreted, it will uh, give the sense of a prayer, of a praise, of an intercession something that would be from man to God. Now, it is possible, and I've been in meetings like this, where uh, somebody will utter something in tongues, uh, where uh, somebody will speak after that, and it will be not an interpretation of the tongue, but something that is a word of prophecy, it's directed to men and not to God, and people will just assume, well, it came after the tongue, it must've been an interpretation, but I would just say, no, that wasn't an interpretation of the tongue. It was a prophetic word that the New Testament says should be judged, Let every word of prophecy be judged. It's very important that we remember that, that uh, any purported uh, claim to be a prophecy shouldn't just be accepted at face value, but it should be examined, it should be judged. That's what the New Testament commands. Uh, because it needs to be measured against scripture. It needs to be measured against the sense of the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, as discerned by the leaders of the congregation or the meeting. Uh, this is just how God wants prophecy to be judged, not just accepted at face value. Let me go to a next question. Hope that's helpful for you there, Rose. From Alfredo, who asks, uh, question, is Sheol or Hades a Christian form of purgatory? I understand that there's no purification in Sheol or Hades, but is this the same place as Abraham's bosom? Are dead believers also there waiting? Okay, Alfredo, um, no. Dead believers are not in Abraham's bosom, which we would regard or I would regard as an area within Sheol or Hades, that was occupied before the finished work of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus paid the penalty, when he could save from the cross to telestai, that it's paid in full, then not only was it paid for believers who would believe in him at that moment and in the future, but it was also paid for believers who had trusted in Jesus in the past. And the believing dead were in Hades but in an area of Hades that you relate to in your question that was called Abraham's bosom, a a place of comfort, a place of uh, just assurance and and blessing, let's just say that. And I, I believe what happened was that when Jesus finished his work on the cross, when he could say it was finished and the new covenant was thoroughly enacted, then Jesus led those people, out of this place of blessing, but it wasn't heaven. And he led them to heaven. Now, believers do not go to some intermediary place once they die. But as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, Believers are with the Lord, not in purgatory, not in Hades or Sheol, That was only, in effect, before the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So, before Jesus instituted the new covenant by his death and resurrection, there were two compartments to Hades or Sheol. Uh, One, a place of torment. The other, a place of blessing, Abraham's bosom. Now, there's only one area or compartment, whatever you wanna call, of uh, Sheol or Hades that's the place of torment, and those are people who are awaiting the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, whereupon they will be cast into the lake of fire, as the book of Revelation says. So, no, uh, Alfredo, I think you're thinking through this properly. You're noticing, listen, there's no indication in Sheol or hatings of a purification, and that's what you're correct about. Maybe there was more similarity between the Roman Catholic concept of purgatory, which isn't... a biblical uh, uh, idea at all, but there's no uh, place for that with, um, with Hades after the finished work of Jesus. Okay, let me go into the next question that comes from Lupi, who asks, uh, from what I read somewhere, David ran for Saul for 10 years. Did David do something that caused him to suffer the consequences of having to run from Saul? And what did David learn from it? Well, Lupi, that's a great question, but let me just sort of answer it. You know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, well, I don't know, I'm not embarrassed about this. Look, as the years go on, I think that my, well, I hope that my understanding of the scripture gets better and better. Don't you hope that's true for you? I hope it's true for me. And when I look at many of my commentary work from years ago, many of my teachings, I often say that David was a fugitive for, I think the figure I throw out a lot is 25 years. And I'm sure if you were to search through all my commentary, you would find some references, I'm trying to go through and correct them as I can, that say that David was a fugitive from Saul for 25 years. That's not correct. And Loopy, you say 10 years, I think it was somewhere between 10 and 15 years. It, it, some of it depends on how old David was at the time, but somewhere between 10 and 15 years, which look, any way you, you, you figure it, that's a long time to be a fugitive. That's a long time to have the King of Israel and all his resources trying to hunt you down and kill you. And Lupe, there wasn't anything that David had done wrong to merit that. Not a single thing. And that's part of what it made such a, a, such a difficult trial for David. Because he knew he was innocent. He knew he had done nothing wrong. He knew that he had been a completely loyal subject to King Saul. He was being hunted as a traitor, as a criminal, as a, uh, just a very bad man. So what was God doing in David's life? He was preparing him to be a king. Lupe, it's true that uh, usually... Anybody whom God uses greatly, God first prepares deeply. And a lot of that preparation will come around uh, pain, difficulty. Oftentimes, we only trust the Lord the way that we should when we're compelled to. We only lean only upon the Lord when every other support has been knocked away. And that was David during those wilderness years. There was no other support that he had. Every other potential support was knocked away and all he could do was trust upon the Lord. That was a critical phase in God's training of David. I'm remembering uh, the great title of the, uh, of the, the biography of King David done by Alan Redpath. It's called The Making of a Man of God. And those years of a fugitive were not the only way that David was made as a man of God, but uh, it was uh, an important way. So thank you there, Lupe, for that. Uh, It looks to me like we're coming up right away with our lightning round. Whew, I better take a drink of water. My moderator's treating me tough today, giving me that lightning round. Let's get at it. Okay, I'm gonna answer these questions as quickly as we can because we really only got a few more minutes here. And uh, normally we keep our question and answer program to about an hour, but since I'm in a time zone 10 hours later than my usual time zone, uh, it's getting late and we gotta get up early in the morning. And so I'm gonna try to do this lightning round and fairly soon after that, I'm going to make my way to bed. So let's get out the lightning round right here. Dan asks this question. Any advice on reaching out to groups connected with four mission groups? There are so many out there, and I'm trying to get my church involved and understand our money can go places we never will. Uh, Dan, there are so many organizations that do tremendous work both um i I assume you're writing from a u.s perspective but the same answer would be principle true no matter where you are but with with both local nearby missions because let's face it wherever it is that you live in the u.s whatever state it is uh, wherever you live around the world um, there's work to be done right where you're at but god also wants us to have a heart for the world there's a lot of great missionary organizations doing some really good work. Some of them are small organizations. Some of them are larger organizations, but I'm really impressed with the amount of both spiritual and humanitarian aid and assistance and effort goes out from among believers. Dan, if you're asking me to recommend some specific ones, send me an email. You can look it up on our website, send me an email, and I'll suggest some specific ones for you to look at, but there's a lot of good works that are worthy of our support. Listen, every believer should be involved in reaching the world for Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the ways to do that is by supporting those people who are out there, so to speak, on the front lines doing the work. Okay, next question comes from Regina, who asks, can you clap in church? Well, Regina, the answer to that question is, sometimes I can, and sometimes I can't. Uh, sometimes I can clap just fine, and other times I have trouble keeping a beat. All right, that's kind of a humorous answer to your question. But, Regina, I- I'll be very straightforward. It really depends on the church. Um, listen, the-, the congregations we've been with here in Kenya, oh, do they clap when they sing. Oh, do they sing beautifully to the Lord, honoring God songs, sometimes in English, mostly in Swahili, or sometimes the more local languages, such as Luo, the one that we've been around today. Uh, But uh, in many congregations, clapping uh, is just something that they do during songs for worship. Sometimes they do it as an exuberant declaration before the Lord. Uh, Sometimes it's really a matter of um, trying to fulfill what the Word of God says, where in the Psalms clapping to God is a acclamation; it's sort of a, a, a applause unto the Lord. And so there's there's a, a exhortations in the Psalms: clap your hands, all you people; shout to God with a voice of triumph. But I, I will say this, um, Regina: in some congregations, such clapping would be seen as disruptive. And look, if I'm visiting a congregation like that. I'm not there to say, well, I'm going to break the mold here. No, I'm here to respect sort of their culture there and realize, okay, this is not a clappy church. So, yeah, but as part of worship, as part of acclamation to the God, it definitely has a place. Um, of course, as with any display of emotion, passion before the Lord, if there's a sense of phoniness or mechanical, nature, or it's just kind of unthinking. Well, everybody just claps because everybody's just supposed to clap. Uh, Then it kind of takes away from the idea, but it doesn't have to be like that. right, next question comes from uh, Adriana, who asks, I feel when I don't know what to say, tears are my way of praying. Adriana, God bless you with that. I think that that certainly can fulfill what Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 8, where the Spirit hears our groanings which cannot be uttered. Listen, it's very true, Adriana, that sometimes our prayers are expressed in tears before God. Our tears can be prayers. So I think you're absolutely correct on that, Adriana. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Next question comes from Tara, who asks, uh, when the mark of the beast comes, shall we move into the mountains and hunt food? Well, Tara, that's certainly a possibility. And it's the kind of thing that Christians have done in the past. When persecution of any kind of thing has arrived, whether or not it has to do with the very end times or whether or not it just has to do with the changing times in the world, uh, Christians have, in the past, fled to refuge when there has been a significant persecution. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But there's been other times when God has led Christians to simply stand and endure in the face of that persecution and, if necessary, suffer death or deprivation or imprisonment. And so uh, whenever there's any kind of persecution, wherever it's connected with the end times or not, this is certainly something that believers can do, and I'm sure many will. Next question comes from Alfredo, who asks, Pastor, what are your thoughts on historically black churches? Is race important in much? Uh, is important in so much as we live in the world? Um, what are my thoughts on historically black churches? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, listen, here in Kenya, the churches we've been in are certainly black. Of course, we're in Kenya. We're in in East Africa, in sort of the heart of Africa. And so uh, it's a reflection of the community. It's a reflection of the culture. And and of course, there's nothing wrong with a historically black church unless they would consciously or unconsciously make people of other races unwelcome. Uh, But look, God is worshiped in different cultures, in different atmospheres, and they can all be honoring to God. There's nothing more or less intrinsically honoring to God, and that just means sort of built-in honoring to God, in the worship of a historically black church or a church that's been historically white or a church that's been historically Asian or a church that's been historically Latino, which at least in the United States, you can find those all over the place, each one of those examples. As long as any one of those churches aren't doing anything deliberately or even unconsciously to make people of other races or ethnicities or cultures feel unwelcome. They should feel free to, a black church, a historically black church, shouldn't feel like they have to imitate the music of white churches in order to draw, so to speak, white people. But they should be welcoming to white people or Asian people or Latino people who want to come. And I would say that that principle just pretty much applies across the board. Just like churches in any community, historically black churches have their challenges. Challenges to uh, emphasize and to really promote uh, exp- expository Bible. I've had people tell me that there is uh, a dearth of, uh, a lack of, uh, good expository Bible teaching in many historically black churches. I'm sure that's not the case universally, but in many. Uh, I personally don't know that to be true, but it, that's what some people have told me. Well, then that's something that can be strengthened. But the same could be said of churches of any ethnicity, Latino, Asian, white, whatever it would be. So uh, we shouldn't over-romanticize. I, I've thought about this here, being with these wonderful believers in Kenya. And I've thought about it, um, how, look, these are are godly people, they love the Lord, but I'm sure these churches have their problems and have their challenges. I shouldn't come here and over-romanticize them and think that somehow this is like Christian perfection on earth. Of course it's not, it's the church. And every church has its problems, its strengths and its weaknesses, and we should all be seeking Jesus together and how we can honor him. All right, last question here in this part of the lightning round comes from Carmel, who asks, uh, our pastor said, faith is a verb. What does it mean? Well, I think what your pastor is getting at with there, Carmel is that faith is something that takes action. You know, verbs are words that describe action. And technically, faith is a noun. It's not a verb. But what he's trying to communicate in that phrase is that faith takes action action. It doesn't just exist, but it takes action, and, uh, or it carries out action, which in many ways is the message of the book of James, the letter of James. James in his letter is very careful to explain that real biblical faith will act. And that's probably what your pastor has in mind when he says faith is a verb. Again, technically, grammatically, he's wrong, but spiritually, he's right. True faith, genuine faith will make itself known in action. Folks, we're over our hour limit. It's uh, past 11 o'clock here in Maguri, uh, Kenya. And so I'm gonna bid you all a good evening. And God willing, and if we live, we will be with you next week from Uganda, If I'm unable to make it because the internet connection isn't good, then I'll have an associate fill in for me, and uh, I hope you can make it with us either way. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers for my wife and I while we're on this time, and uh, we're very appreciative for all your kindness. So God bless you. We'll see you uh, next week, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.